0: You are listening to When Policy Meets Practice from JFF, where we delve into the practical realities
1: of education and workforce development policy with practitioners on JFF's
0: Policy Leadership Trust.
2: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Paul Fain, your host. This episode looks at college transfer, which has long been a problem in higher education as far too many students lose credits, time, and money when they move between institutions. As with many things, the pandemic has exacerbated these challenges. The National Student Clearinghouse Research Center recently reported that during the last academic year, almost 200,000 fewer students nationwide transferred compared to the previous year. The Tackling Transfer Project seeks to take on this persistent problem by helping more community college students make good on their goal of earning a bachelor's degree. The work is led by the Aspen Institute College Excellence Program, HCM Strategists, and SOVA, and it focuses on transfer policy and practice in Minnesota, Texas, and Virginia. My three guests for this episode serve on Tackling Transfer's Advisory Board, Sharon Morrissey is Vice Chancellor for Academic Services and Research for the Virginia Community College System. She talked about how Virginia has leaned on data and strong college leaders to create some of the nation's top transfer pathways between community colleges and four-year universities.
3: The urgency of the approach is that we have to act like we're in the 21st century as higher ed institutions and meet the students where they are. And part of that is helping them understand the cost of higher education and the cost of transfer and helping them to fully understand what they save by going to the community college.
2: I also spoke with Elena Kuros-Lavanis, Chief of Staff and Assistant Commissioner for Academic Policy and Student Success at the Massachusetts Department of Higher Education. Equity is the top priority for the state's public colleges and Kiros has described how improving transfer for students is a key part of the equity imperative in Massachusetts.
4: We've, since 2016, really worked to build statewide transfer pathways so that a student could start at any community college and transfer to any public university, essentially completing the same series of courses within a discipline. So that level of collaboration is always needed when we're, we're talking about transfer students.
2: Also joining me for this episode was Sherletha Lee, Dean of the University of South Carolina Upstate's Mary Black School of Nursing. Lee talked about how nurses often do not receive credit for the skills they've picked up on the job as they seek to advance their careers by earning additional credentials. She described several solutions to this transfer challenge, including the use of prior learning assessment through testing and student portfolios.
0: Since we can't give a block transfer credit or a credit for that course, particularly what we could do is we could allow the student to test out of the course. So what we did was we developed a credit by exam for specific courses in that first semester, like pharmacology, pathophysiology and health assessment.
2: As always, I was joined by two experts to help us make sense of what we heard. Laura Couturier is a principal with HCM Strategists and one of the driving forces behind the Tackling Transfer Project. And its recent Transfer Reset Report, which featured recommendations for equitable policies to help clear transfer roadblocks for students. Also joining me for this sense making segment was Dave Altstadt, an associate director at JFF who focuses on policy. All right, let's get to the conversations. So I'm speaking with Sharon Morrissey. Sharon, how are you?
3: I am well. How are you, Paul?
2: Doing well. Thanks for doing this. So, as a journalist who pays attention to transfer issues, you think about where it works well, and one of the first examples always, and, and rightfully, is Northern Virginia Community College and George Mason University. From your vantage point at the system, what are some of the projects you're working on now that we should pay most attention to in terms of improving transfer pathways?
3: That's an amazing partnership, as, as you already know. I would say, I think it started about four or five years ago, and because of that partnership, where students are enrolled in both institutions at the same time. So they're enrolled at Northern Virginia Community College and they're also enrolled at George Mason and they are tracked on a pathway to a major. They don't have to fill out another application form when they are ready to transfer. The process happens seamlessly. They get tremendous advising support from both institutions and there are multiple, multiple majors that they can transfer into. So I think this is a model for, for the country and how transfer partnerships can work. And because of the great success of this model, we've been working in Virginia on a project that we call Transfer Virginia over the past three years. It's a grant funded project where we are, we're really working on three primary pieces to the transfer puzzle, and I like to say this is the long game. You know, you have to take the long view when you talk about fixing transfer. So in our Transfer Virginia work, we're working on the nuts and bolts pieces. These are are the things that I think are the must-haves. The institutions have to agree on what will transfer and what will not. The institutions have to agree on what are those pathways to the major and map those out. The institutions have to agree on general education transfer courses that are guaranteed to transfer. They have to agree on credit for prior learning. It's very helpful to have a technology platform that that provides all this information for the students. So those are the must-haves that we have been working on in Virginia over the last three years. In addition to that, we're really focused on leadership. So this can't happen without great leaders at the institution. We saw that at George Mason and Northern Virginia Community College. We see it also at Virginia Commonwealth University and Reynolds Community College and John Tyler Community College. It's another Pathways partnership that's really, really working well where the students are enrolled in both the university and the community college at the same time and getting tremendous support. We know that students who transfer need an incredible amount of advising. They need transfer support. We need to disaggregate data so that we can see how students are doing and where we need to focus. And I think that leads us to a third area where we really need to focus, and that's on funding and affordability.
2: Well, let me, before we get into that, just quickly on the leadership front, I think our audience knows that this is a lot of work, making these articulation pathways takes a lot of effort on both sides. How have you been able to get the four years to participate to the degree that you have that sounds unusual, frankly, compared to most states?
3: In Virginia in 2017, we had some significant transfer legislation that came out of the General Assembly that year. At that point, everything was pretty broken and the legislators were realizing Students can't transfer their credits well, or a student would take too many history courses and then transfer and find out that all those history courses wouldn't transfer, whatever those issues were. And then they also saw the growing success of the model that was at George Mason and Northern Virginia Community College. So significant piece of legislation that had multiple levels of, here's how we think you should fix transfer. And it was well informed. They did a lot of research. And in fact, I worked very closely with legislative staff during the process of of writing that legislation. But basically, the legislation says you must have a transfer core that is guaranteed to transfer. You must do transfer pathways, mapping to the major. You must build a technology platform that provides information for students. So, all of that legislation was like the kickstart. Our State Council of Higher Education for Virginia led the process, pulling together representatives from community colleges and universities. And then we also had, as I mentioned earlier, some grant support from the Aspen Institute and others. And we were able to bring in outside experts to talk to our university and community college presidents about some of the work that needed to be done. This is hard work. It's taken years to leverage some of the activities and some of the functionality that that needed to happen and bring together faculty and go through the whole process of agreeing on what that general education guaranteed core would be and how those pathways would be mapped. But it also required leadership. So we did find very intentionally, we, we identified who the champions are among the university presidents, where were those partnerships working particularly well? And then we put those individuals in front of their peers as often as we could to talk about uh, why this is important. We also used data a lot to talk about why this is important. So all of that together built this recognition that we needed strong leadership in order to really, really fix the transfer problem. We needed presidents to stand in front of their faculty and say, transfer is important, this is an important project, thank you for participating in it and helping to build a stronger transfer pipeline so that we can get more students to finish the baccalaureate degree and not make them retake courses that they've already had at the community college. Let's fix it so it's more streamlined for the students.
2: That's a lot of pieces. And as always, to get to to get results in higher education, you need to have all the pieces. But that well-informed legislation part seems worth noting.
3: Yes, we couldn't have done it without that.
2: I want to give you time to talk about affordability. I mean, obviously, you think about the goals here. It's helping students maintain their momentum and to not lose time and money. And you talked already about waiving things like application fees. Can you talk about some of the friction points in the affordability front that you've sought to get rid of?
3: Sure. One thing that's happening today, of course, is that students are different than they were 20 years ago. They're more mobile. They have different expectations about what they expect from their college and their university. They swirl, they stop out, they come and take classes and they stop for a while and then they come back. So I think the the whole approach... The urgency of the approach is that we have to act like we're in the 21st century as higher ed institutions and meet the students where they are. And part of that is helping them understand the cost of higher education and the cost of transfer and helping them to fully understand what they save by going to the community college. In Virginia, we do publish that information and we try to make it as transparent to students as possible that they can save up to $18,000 in tuition and fees if they first attend a community college and then finish an associate degree and transfer as long as they transfer seamlessly and all of their credits count. That's why we have to work on the nuts and bolts piece, because all of those credits have to count in order for the student to really realize that savings that can come from attending the community college first. One other opportunity that we have in Virginia, it's actually been in place for, I think, since 2007, 2008, we have a two-year college transfer grant program That provides an incentive for students to first complete the associate degree at a community college before they transfer to a four-year college or university. And it's intended as a means to reduce the overall cost towards completing a bachelor's degree. It is a needs-based scholarship intended to lower that tuition cost for students in their junior and senior years. So Basically, it's $1,000 a year that comes as a scholarship to the student to help pay for tuition and fees. If the student transfers into a STEM or other high-demand, identified high-demand program, the student gets an additional $1,000 a year. So that's $2,000 a year. If the student transfers into one of the historically black universities or a university with a low completion rate, that's another $1,000 a year. So up to $3,000 a year for tuition reduction. And so you might ask, does that make a difference? So I've looked at the data going back to about 2014, 2015. Granted, fewer than Slightly fewer than 10% of our total transfer students obtain the college transfer grant. But those who do receive the grant are retained at a higher rate than any other community college transfer student. They also complete their four-year degree at a higher rate than any other college transfer student. So it it seems pretty clear that the grant makes a difference in student outcomes. So we're now working, looking at ways we can extend this opportunity, maybe increasing the pot of money available and looking at other ways to leverage these funds to help students complete their associate degree, then transfer, then get this financial incentive to finish the baccalaureate degree.
2: And so that grant, I mean, you mentioned it, it's a needs-based one. And the piece for students who transfer to HBCUs, there's an equity component here that I think is pretty important.
3: Yes, absolutely. This grant does target low-income students. Low-income students typically start at community colleges anyway. And sometimes the sticker shock when they transfer to the university is profound, And I don't know this for a fact, but I believe anecdotally that that's a primary reason a lot of students who transfer never are able to finish the bachelor's degree. One other initiative that we've just started working on, so we're in very, very early stages, is what we're calling a price point guarantee, so that students who transfer, there will be total transparency about the cost of the program, and we're also trying to to figure out ways that universities can cap tuition costs with a guaranteed tuition cap for a student who transfers under certain circumstances or within a certain period of time. Trying to do everything we can to make it clear to students what the cost is. And then also, we're trying to make clear to students what the benefits are after they do transferring and finish the baccalaureate degree. And if they Acquire debt, then how long it might take them to pay off the debt, depending on their degree field. So, making all of that information as accessible and transparent as possible, I think, is really important.
2: Yeah, we we definitely know students need as much information as possible when plotting their path. Sharon, I feel like we barely scratched the surface, particularly with all that you all are doing in Virginia. But we'll leave it there. I want to thank you for taking time to talk with us.
3: Thank you so much, Paul.
2: Okay, here comes Shirlitha Lee. Hello, Shirlitha.
0: Hi, how are you?
2: I'm doing well. Thanks for joining me. Goes without saying that nurses are under a lot of strain right now and you want to make sure that the pathway has as little friction as possible. I know in, in healthcare, folks have a lot of credentials they can earn, and unfortunately. Along the way, they tend to face challenges in earning credit or losing credit for what they've already learned. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing at USC Upstate to prevent that loss?
0: When we look at the needs of nurses in general, it really doesn't matter where they are. Nationally, many of them face very similar issues, nursing students. For our RN and program particularly, which is a program that takes students from an associate degree, RN degree, to a baccalaureate RN degree. They are individuals who are working. They have families, full-time jobs. And you can imagine with everything that's going on right now with COVID and the pandemic, these nurses are not just stressed, but they're really stressed. And you know, going to school and going back to school, even if it was a priority, is not probably at the very top of the list now. And for those who are choosing to go back to school, we want to make that process as seamless as possible for these students. And so really looking at how do we acknowledge and recognize the experiences that they already have and the value that they bring into the program from those experiences through prior learning assessment. I think each individual comes from their own unique background and each student brings something different to the table and it doesn't always have to be a cookie cutter approach. Also, we should be flexible and think about how we can do things differently and be innovative and be unique. One thing that we did when we were in Memphis is we were able to Really work with our partners in the community and leverage financial aid and help these students. Not just looking at credit by exam, but also how can we help them financially? Uh, as I mentioned, many of them were working and full time jobs, and and a lot of these employers had what we call tuition reimbursement. And with that tuition reimbursement, of course, they would have to the student would have to pay upfront. And so what we did was we tried to leverage the financial aid component and uh, come up with a plan where the student didn't have to pay up front and then also allow that student to earn credit through prior learning experiences to save them money from uh, many different aspects of avenues. And so now we're looking at how can we build some of those similar partnerships here in South Carolina with some of our local practice partners and healthcare agencies who also want the same things for their students, for our students and for their nurses that are practicing in their facilities. And so just really just having those conversations and getting that dialogue going is where we're starting.
2: I know, though, financial aid and PLA are tricky. As you mentioned, employers can play a role there. I mean, do you feel like there's growing awareness among employers in this space that that can go a long way to helping nurses progress?
0: Oh, absolutely. I think there is, because as we are seeing more and more facilities, be more open-minded as to how they can help their employees to go back to school and get a baccalaureate degree, particularly in nursing from my perspective. And so I do think this is definitely hitting at the forefront because not only from a local or regional perspective, but also from a national perspective, there's a drive and a push to get more nurses a baccalaureate degree prepared and higher so that they can provide high quality patient care.
2: I think it goes without saying again that the state also wants in the federal government more nurses to progress. There's a a huge demand for nurses everywhere. So are there things that the state could do to help students on that pathway, specifically speaking about them getting credit for their work?
0: Yes. One thing about South Carolina that I appreciate is that within our state, we do have a website where students can go to, and there are criteria that specifically outline for nursing programs for students who are completing what we call RN completion programs, which is the same thing as transitioning from an associate degree to a baccalaureate degree, where students across the state, it's pretty much standard practice that students can get up to 60 credits applied to their baccalaureate degree from their associate degree program. And so therefore, it's not a institutional specific thing where each institution has to figure it out. It's kind of already been blessed by the state. And so for any new RN to BSM program or for any current RN to BSM program, they're able to adopt that practice. And I think that is very helpful to the student because you don't have to go on a search and find to see which programs would be best. They pretty much know if they are in the state of South Carolina that this is an option that's available to them if the institution supports it. But then once you get to the actual coursework that's in, contained in the RA and the BSEM program, but outside of the 60 credit score, then depending on the other states, however many credits or what other institutions may allot, uh, there are also other ways and you know, we can continue to identify prior learning that the student may already have. For example, I mentioned some of the things we did when I was in Memphis. And one thing that we instituted there as well was, We looked at some of the entry-level courses that were the beginning courses for the nursing program. These are the required courses, and these were courses that they couldn't get credit for. And even though they couldn't get what we call this block transfer credit for these courses, these students still had mastered a lot of this content. For example, one course was pharmacology. And if you've been a nurse and you've been in the hospital or working in any kind of practice setting and you've been administering medication for some amount of time, you probably have gained quite a bit of competency in that area. And so since we can't give a, a block transfer credit or a credit for that course particularly, what we could do is we could allow the student to test out of the course. So what we did was we developed a uh, credit by exam for specific courses in that in that first semester, like pharmacology, pathophysiology, and health assessment, which most nurses do a physical assessment, head-to-toe assessment every day, you know, and a lot of them have gotten quite competent in it. And so that's one another course that we allowed them to be able to demonstrate competency and test out of. So we allow students to do portfolios to earn credit. And so for this, we did it a little bit differently. So instead of them getting credit for the full course, they got credit for what they knew. And then they took the part of the course that they didn't know. And that was a very unique way to look at it because when we first got ready to approach it, some people was like, well, how is this going to work? If it's an eight credit hour course, how are you going to to do this, how are you going to break the course down where the student doesn't do? Maybe some students did four, some students had five credits, some had six, some took the whole eight. Just depending on where um, where they were. And so what we did was we met the student where they were. Basically, when we looked at it, a lot of it was about the concerns with the faculty were focused around rigor, and they wanted to make sure that which we allow students to go through this process that that did not diminish the rigor of our program. And so when we talked about how do we do that and we really looked at how we were going to approach it with looking at course outcomes and students actually identifying from the outcomes, which outcomes did they meet and how did they meet those outcomes and looking at it from a very holistic point of view was very supportive and helping faculty to really accept the process. And so we had students who maybe met outcomes one, three, and five, but they didn't meet outcomes two, three, and four. And whatever it was that they didn't meet, those are the outcomes that they would address in the course and thus that would associate with how many credit hours they would take or not. So very unique, very different.
2: I can see that being a lot of work, not just to create the processes for students, but to change attitudes at the institution. So uh, I wish you luck. It's important work as well. So thank you.
0: You are very welcome. Thank you so much.
2: Next up is my interview with Elena Kiro's levance Hello, Elena. Good morning. Thanks for doing this. We've seen new data this week from the National Student Clearinghouse about transfer, some alarming numbers, enrollments have been hit around the country due to the pandemic. Can you give us just a sense of where things stand in Massachusetts?
4: One of the alarming things that we found when we were looking at our fall 2020 enrollment was a failure to really recruit students of color at our institutions and to retain them.
2: Obviously, you can't improve on how you're doing if you don't know how you're doing. And it sounds like you all have put a lot of effort into that disaggregated data. Can you talk a little bit about how your ability to track enrollment patterns, retention patterns have changed in recent years?
4: We've always disaggregated our data by race and ethnicity, as well as gender and Pell eligibility status and published it in different venues. But more recently, we've revived our performance measurement reporting system in partnership with our public institutions, which has a series of metrics that have been agreed upon by, by all of the, the public institutions here in the Commonwealth. And one of the things that we did was rather than just disaggregate it and display it in a way that still makes it public but isn't as obvious, we created these equity spotlights that showed what the disaggregated data looked like to refocus folks on the areas where we need to do the most work, and that has been incredibly helpful when we launched our equity agenda in, in 2018, where the, the top policy and performance priority for the state has been to increase post-secondary attainment among racially minoritized adults. So having the ability to display the, the data in a way that is easy to digest has been, been really helpful.
2: In the last few years, we've gotten more disaggregated data. We've seen the social mobility data from the Chetty folks at Harvard. And to some extent, I think, has helped drive awareness as we went into the pandemic, when a lot of these challenges were exacerbated, of what we're facing as a society. How has it played out in Massachusetts in terms of helping set priorities or for institutions to really target what they need to change? I mean, how are you using what you know to really drive that change,
4: I think the first thing that we did was we made it the priority. So racial equity, like I mentioned earlier, is the top policy and performance priority for for higher education in the Commonwealth. And uh, the difference is between the priority and a priority. It is the priority for the state, so it's not an addition to anything else. That is a central focus for the public system right now, and making that the explicit focus being very clear that we were talking about racial equity helped, I think, build off of a movement that was already happening in our campuses. I think it's really important to acknowledge that institutions in in Massachusetts, several of them were doing this kind of work and were trying to be more equity-minded in conversations around student support, student success, particularly around transfer. And so, what it did is it, it catalyzed a movement.
2: Absolutely. I mean, can you talk a little bit about how budgets and policy priorities reflect the transfer mandate in terms of equity? I mean, what are some of the, the policies that are most promising to kind of drive the needle in the right direction there?
4: I'll start with the fact that we've, since 2016, really worked to build statewide transfer pathways so that a student could start at any community college and transfer to any public university, essentially completing the same series of courses within a discipline. So that level of collaboration is always needed when we're we're talking about transfer students and that's a very linear process. So other things that we've done is we created a reverse transfer pathway in recognition that 50% of our students who start at community college And transfer to a university, do so before earning an associate. So meeting students where they are through things like reverse transfer is critically important. And another piece, which isn't directly tied to transfer, but obviously there are effects on student success and institutional success in supporting students has been financial aid. And the governor and the legislature have been incredibly supportive of our financial aid line item and we've seen increases in ways that we haven't seen in the past 20 years. So the focus has been on addressing unmet need when it comes to instructional costs at the community colleges and, and now at the state universities. And so really, some of it is not just the transfer policies, it's, it's the policies that surround the students. So things like financial aid and addressing unmet need and making sure that they have a stipend for their books. Is critically important. Making sure that they have access to open educational resources is incredibly important. Making sure that we address basic needs security is incredibly important. So part of it is a transfer policy. That the other part is kind of threading the needle because we need to look at students holistically and not just in this sense that they're numbers that move from institution to institution with credits associated with them. They're they're whole people. With full lives outside of school, and there are things that we need to do to better support them. And some of that is in the transfer space and removing barriers, but part of it is recognizing that they have needs outside of the classroom, and, and being the being the support system for them in order to ensure that they're successful. That has to be part of the mix. Well, it
2: sounds like in the state you've been able to make sure that not just institutions but policymakers are aware of how intertwined transfer is with student success broadly. What gives you pause going forward? What are the barriers that you see ahead to maintain this momentum and, and how will you overcome them, assuming there are some?
4: One of the things that gives me pause is equity feels like a very popular term right now, which is helpful to get people interested in in the conversation. And I am very grateful to that, or for that rather. The challenge will be sustaining and operationalizing all of this work, which is exactly what the department is invested in doing right now. So I'll I'll give you an example where we're doing an audit of all of our student-facing Policies And an audit is just that, right? Like it helps you understand where, in our case, there are areas of improvement for better supporting racially minoritized students. The next part of that is actually developing and implementing policies that better support students of color. So, so you can audit it and name it, but then there's a work of actually amending a policy and changing a policy and making sure that once that gets done, and you go through the policy making process that implementation looks a certain way at the at the campus level. So I think making sure that this isn't a one time conversation and that what it leads to is actual policy change rather than just the rhetoric of the need to to do things in an equity minded way. That's what gives me pause. But I know that a lot of people are doing it and I know that a lot of people are doing it in the Commonwealth. So while it gives me pause, it also gives me hope because I think we're a state that kind of has embraced this notion of policy as being a, a love language. And as others say, the people closest to the pain need to be closest to the power. And I think we're doing that and maintaining that and operationalizing that is where we're at right now. But the fact that we've recognized it and have dedicated a significant amount of time, energy, and resources makes me hopeful for the future.
2: Well, that's a great note for us to end, Elena. Thank you for indulging these questions. We'll obviously be watching the progress and whether or not it can be sustained in Massachusetts. And I appreciate your expertise here.
4: Thank you, Paul. It was my pleasure.
2: Thanks for listening. Please stay tuned for our sense-making discussion coming up right now. big topic here. i joined by Lara and Dave. And Lara, let's start with you. Given your work on the transfer reset report, what are some of the big themes that jumped out at you in those interviews?
1: Well, thank you, Paul and Dave. It's great to be here with you. And the Tackling Transfer Policy Advisory Board, on which Sherlitha and Sharon and Elena sit, it's a group of a dozen expert practitioners, people who really know the naughty sides of transfer. And so it's been really exciting to run alongside of them, and and quite frankly, a privilege to learn from them because they've held a few principles really at their center as they've done their work. For one thing, the board's work makes clear that as a field, we need to recognize that in the year 2021, students are pursuing learning after high school in very diverse ways, So if you look at the data on, for example, how many students take dual enrollment classes, how many are in online classes, how many are moving across institutions, often multiple times, how many adults hold some college credits, no degree, how many people hold military experience. We recognize that the majority of learners in the year 2021, are seeking to have their learning recognized and to be able to transfer credits and they're harmed by the current system and how it does not transfer their credit across and and honor it and apply it to their completion of credentials. And so the board is really pushing the field to stop what it has historically done, which is look at transfer students as a group of students off to the side and to stop treating them in such a siloed way. In addition, the current policies and practices related to transfer erect higher barriers to success for racially minoritized students and for students from low-income backgrounds. And the data on this are very, very clear. And we also know that racially minoritized students and students from low-income backgrounds are more likely to, for example, start their educations in community colleges, to have military experience to hold credits as adults, but not have completed their degrees yet. And so fixing transfer and honoring all of that learning is a huge lever for equity in post-secondary outcomes. And so the board is impatient about and unapologetically impatient about the need to stop tweaking at the edges around the transfer conversation and to elevate transfer and recognition of learning as strategies that we absolutely have to pursue for equity. And so given that understanding of who today's students are that the board brings with them and their commitment to students in this process, they've really pushed the field to think about transfer policy differently. So if we look across states right now and we look at where state policy activity is often clustered, we see that states are quite active in spaces like setting up gen ed cores and common course numbering systems, things that build the transfer pathways for students. And that work is critical and it must continue and be maintained. That infrastructure will always be needed. But what is missing is looking at transfer students more holistically. And so the board really tries to elevate a policy framework. And Elena talked about this, about really centering the students and looking at transfer and recognition of learning holistically. And so they're trying to fill many gaps in the policy framework around looking at, for example, data transparency, what accountability would look like for institutions to actually use these transfer pathways that are being built the financial incentives for institutions to come to the table and use those pathways and the supports for transfer students, uh, financial supports for transfer students that are currently really missing. I think it's really exciting that they're pushing to say, hey, we've really treated students and treated policies for transfer as the siloed thing. We have to really rethink this. These are today's students. This is a critically important issue. We have to look at it holistically.
2: Thanks for that. Dave, any top-line
5: thoughts you want to add? Well, this is exciting work. I'm so glad we can bring this to our podcast listeners. I think on top of what Laura was saying in terms of the imperative for thinking about students holistically and putting equity at the center of the transfer conversation is also the business case, which came out really strongly in Charlitha's interview, where she was able to craft through credit by exam, through portfolio, helping nurses out there in the field get farther along faster and save more money toward getting their bachelor's degree in nursing. And we know that that's essential for our healthcare field, especially right now, as we're dealing with a global pandemic and nursing shortages, a time we need to expand the pipeline and, and ensure that nurses have the skills to be able to do the work that we need them to do. And there's a business imperative, right? Hospitals and healthcare providers need those nurses. And so she was able to craft a a really amazing partnership with employers and move her institution forward in providing them credit for ways that otherwise you would think an institution wouldn't wanna do because they they wouldn't get the money from students taking those courses, but so forward thinking. So important. And that's what happens when you put the student at the center. And also, frankly, when you put the economy and the job at the center of all this, because ultimately, students are out there to get a credential, to get a job. And that's who we have to be thinking about in the transfer conversation.
2: Laura, we didn't give Charlitha enough time to really talk about what she's accomplished on this. Any takeaways from her work that I know you're familiar with about how to to really leverage that employer interest that Dave mentions to help students on the affordability front.
1: Charlitha says in her interview that sometimes people just haven't thought of ideas. And so she's excited to have some of those ideas. And she's very modest. I think she is really that courageous leader bringing the creative ideas with her and willing to really try new things. And so her work In addition to really elevating prior learning assessment, which we don't see enough of across the country, people taking that seriously and really applying it to people's completion. But she's also been very innovative in, for example, working with employers so that the institutions are direct billing the employers instead of billing the students for their tuition. And so, you know, she's in the space of. Way beyond a more linear look at transfer of the two to four year pathway and really looking at who are the students who come to me and how do we find and honor all of the learning they've done. And to uh, Dave's point, meet the business case. We need more nurses in this country now more than ever. And so her work is really thoughtful and cutting edge.
2: Yeah. As the jobs numbers show today, we need more early child care workers, all sorts of folks whose learning need to be honored. You know, Dave, I, I've been writing about transfer and PLA for like a decade or more, and things just don't really ever seem to get better. What's going to help crack this nut right now? I mean, is the Biden student success plan going to make a dent if it happens? Where can we draw some optimism here? Certainly, we need
5: federal and state policy to play a role in all this. From the federal level, I think there could be a data play, right? We need better information. We need to help, as Sharon said help students understand the cost of getting a degree, both an associate's degree, a bachelor's degree, and clearly you need better data to do that. I also think about right the American Families plan, Biden's big proposal for supporting families in the free community college. Part of that, there's a function of that, the the student success fund, we've talked about this in the podcast, want to keep on mentioning it. That is a potential significant lever for not just making college affordable, but also ensuring that we're helping institutions and systems and states implement effective practices. And transfer is is named among some of the key strategies that need to be taken head on. So there's definitely an opportunity there if we are able to pass that legislation and if states go about doing this in the right way. And fortunately. With the transfer reset report, we have a, an amazing roadmap of what we need to do to, to sort of drive this
2: work forward. Laura, as a, as a closing thought here, while we wait and pressure Washington and, and state capitals to, to do more support, what can institutions do? Any, any kind of single action you'd like institutional leaders to take on to try to make a difference right now?
1: There's so much to choose from because the board has so many wonderful ideas, but I think if I have to choose one, I would encourage institutions and their state partners to take a hard look at how financial aid is currently distributed. So we are researching this right now. We're coming to understand that it is often the case that transfer students who are eligible for financial aid still are not receiving it because the states are allocating aid to the institutions and the institutions are prioritizing who gets the aid. And it's not anything where they're purposefully not giving aid to transfer students. It's just that the students aren't known to the institutions. They don't have faculty advocating for them. They're not receiving departmental scholarships. So they kind of fall to the bottom of the barrel. And so we're identifying this trend now. It appears that at both the state and institutional level, students are really getting kind of cut off at the knees with the state aid And it's really critically important to consider in the context of particularly the the more historical two to four year transfer pathway where we're working with students who have historically been paying community college tuition and are dealing with the sticker shock of moving to university tuition if at the same time they're eligible for financial aid and are not getting it. That's a really huge issue that we've got to tackle. And so I would encourage states and institutions just to, to take a look at who their students are, what proportion of them are transfer students, and whether students are getting the aid uh, for which they're eligible, and if not, how they can figure out how to change the way that that's distributed.
2: All right, we'll leave it there. Obviously, we could do quite a few more episodes on this topic. Maybe we will someday. But Laura, Dave, thanks for sharing your expertise to help us make sense of what we heard. Thank you. Thank you. you.